welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Uh, I want to take uh, advantage of the fact that Mike Lucan isn't here to say woo-hoos are always allowed. Okay, he's, he's, he's kind of started an anti-woo-hoo movement. And, I, you know, we just need to, just he needs to be discipled and transformed. Uh, there we go. See, that's what I'm saying. Um, we're continuing on in our uh, series that we've been in for the last four or five weeks now, uh, Inside Out, we're, we're calling the series, where we're looking at these various questions uh, that are kind of foundational in our process of spiritual formation. This morning, we are uh, addressing the, the question of how do people change? And our passage this morning is in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. So if you turn there with me in your Bibles, and then if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we come uh, laying our lives before you, desperate for your work in our hearts. We have come to know ourselves enough, God, to know that something needs to change. So we trust you uh, and your grace to do that work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The expectation is pretty universal. We all expect faith in Jesus to make a difference in a person's life. People both inside the church and outside the church, all feel that way. All you have to do is look at the uh, kind of perpetual accusation of hypocrisy uh, that is, circulates around out there about church people. I don't know if you've heard this before, but church people have reputation of being hypocrites. Um, why do people accuse Christians of being hypocrites? Well, because they expect Christians to be different. See it as well in the vitriol, the betrayal, the anger that is felt when uh, some prominent religious leader is caught in some 
major moral failure. Everybody feels it. Even people who don't claim any belief in God will act offended at the religious leader that has acted immorally. Because we all expect them to be different. And for good reason, of course. If you spend any time studying the writings of the New Testament, the expectation for character change is spelled out explicitly. Again, this passage that we just read is, is just an, a, a one example, right? Uh, if you just even kind of skim the passage superficially, you, you learn that we're called out to put off our old self, to be made new in the attitudes of our minds, to put off falsehood. Uh, he who has been stealing should stop doing that. Um, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Again, this is something that we just see over and over and over all throughout the New Testament. Because see, once you understand the gospel of the availability of the kingdom of God, well, you realize that the transformation of our character of our habits, of the way we do things, the way we think, the way we live. Well, that is really the promise of the gospel. That's actually the good news that Jesus came to offer. It's what Jesus came to do, to save us from the destructive patterns of behavior, of thinking that are hurting us, they're hurting the people around us and even the planet itself. Changing the bent aspects of who we are to be like Jesus is what this thing that we do, this thing we call the Christian life, it's what it is all about. It's why the invitation to life and the reality of the kingdom of God is good news. The good news is we don't have to keep living the way that we have been with all the same fears and addictions and destructive habits. We can, we can change. Which of course brings us to our question that we're addressing uh, this, week, for this week. How does it happen? How do people change? And Right from the beginning, uh, there's a couple of disclaimers that I got to toss out uh, as we get into the message this morning. Um, first is, while I have been doing a deep dive on this subject for the better part of the last 25 years, uh, thinking about this subject, reading about it, studying about it, meditating on the real answer to the question how people change is I don't know. Um, it's not that I don't have some general ideas about it, general ideas that I'm pretty confident are pretty accurate and biblical and reliable and true to experience. It's just that the process of real transformation, I mean, not just external behavior modification, but real like, you know, caterpillar to butterfly kind of transformation. There's just a lot of mystery and miracle to the whole thing. So really, sorry, I 
I hope this is an appropriate example. It's really kind of like the question of how are babies made, right? I mean, we know how babies are made, right? But really, we don't really know how babies are made. I don't know if that makes sense. That's kind of the same way with transformation. When we talk about this stuff, it's not like there aren't reliable instructions to follow and things to do that are definitely part of how we change. But ultimately, character transformation is not a science. It's a miracle. And we should never forget that. Second disclaimer I want to make is that uh, even to address the reliable aspects that we do know about how people change is way more than we could fit in the you know, 45 minutes to an hour that I'm going to be talking this morning. Um, and so that was a joke. I'm not going to talk for 45 minutes to an hour. This is a shocked look on your eyes. Um, uh, and so, you know, what we're talking about, this isn't an exhaustive treatment of the subject. This is why we have, you know, full-on year-long experience like the journey or AWOL or these kind of big study processes that we're doing um, simply because there's a lot to talk about and a lot to process through this. So this really is kind of just like an introduction to the flyover, surfacey glance of how people change. Because um, there are some major themes that are involved in the process of transformation that I help, will help us get started on it this morning. Ultimately, the journey of spiritual formation is not one that you can map out in its entirety like before you set out on the journey. Really, it is kind of a figure-it-out-as-you-go sort of thing, rather than a surefire, step-by-step, you know, color-by-numbers sort of process. But having said all that, uh, there are three major uh, components of how people change that the New Testament highlights that I want to spend our time on this morning just to kind of get us introduced to the idea. And the first, of course, uh, is the grace of God. Now, if you've spent any time uh, around Christian churches, you know that God's grace, kind of a big deal. Uh, we sing about it a lot. We say things happen by it a lot. Uh, we get places by it. We know it's big. It's great. It's awesome. It's, you know, amazing, as the song would say. It's a nice, comforting thing. It is a great gift. But for all our talking about it, for all our... Um, emphasis on it, a lot of times there can be a lot of confusion around what God's grace actually is. Now, uh, personally, for many years of my life growing up in the Baptist tradition that I grew up in, the operating definition of the grace of God that I kind of grew up with was that God's grace is his unmerited favor, is the definition that I worked with. Uh, God's grace is his unmerited favor. And I, I know I'm not the only one who grew up this definition exactly widespread. You know, if you were a kind of Protestant in the 20th century, if you listen to Billy Graham at all, uh, this is the definition. Actually, you look, go to the Oxford Dictionary today and you look up the word grace. Oxford Dictionary will tell you it is God's unmerited favor. Um, but... While this is a widely accepted definition for God's grace, as 
described in the New Testament, it is like we were saying last week with the gospel, a rather truncated or reduced definition that ultimately robs it of the actual power ascribed to it by the authors of the New Testament. Because to define grace as merely God's unmerited favor, at least in how we use all of those words today, it really boils it down to God's attitude towards us. Basically, it reduces grace down to the statement, uh, God likes us even though he has no real reason to. Uh, which again, is very biblical. And it is very gloriously, wonder, amazingly true. God does like us even though he has no good reason to. So we humans are unmeritedly favored by God. That is true, but that is not all grace, as the New Testament writers use the word, is about. If you simply rely on that definition, when you encounter the concept of grace, uh, you'll find that it just doesn't work. If you read through the New Testament, of course, again, we don't have the time to do the holistic, you know, kind of word study and, 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 and do all the nuts. But if, if you go through the, 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 the New Testament, you find that grace is something that you can grow in. 2 Peter 3.18. It helps us in our times of need. Hebrews 4.16. Grace is something that we can fall short of. Hebrews 12.15. It is something that gives us strength in our kingdom living. Hebrews 13.9. It is something God can give us more of. James 4.6. It is something that we can fall away from. Galatians 5.4. Uh, and if you just operate, if you just take even those verses and then you kind of try to bring this definition of God's unmerited favor and put it into those verses, it, it just doesn't fit. Probably the most incongruent verse with that kind of reduced definition of grace is Luke 2.50. And Luke 2.50 uh, tells us that God's grace was on Jesus. So Jesus, God Grace was on Jesus. Now, if grace is God's unmerited favor, that just doesn't work with Jesus because if Jesus is actually the one person in all of history, in all of the universe, who very much merits God's favor. Unmerited favor does not apply to Jesus. So defining grace as simply unmerited favor really robs the term of the meaning and the power that the New Testament gives it when the writers use the word. Now, just take a pause and I'll just say, I know it can be really, really irritating to come to church and to have someone like me stand up here and tell you that a word that you've been using for decades does not mean what you thought it meant. Inconceivable! Just to kind of give you the context for that. And if you were here last week, that kind of makes two weeks in a row that we've been doing this. So I just want to say, forgive me. 
uh, right from the, 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 the front here. But in this case, it is really important because grace is foundational to our ongoing life in the reality of the kingdom of God. So if unmerited favor is not a robust enough definition of grace, what is God's grace? Well, I am glad you asked. Um, more than God just liking us, even though we don't deserve us, more than just a favorable attitude towards us. Grace is God acting on our behalf to accomplish in and through us what we cannot accomplish on our own. Just say that again. Grace is God acting on our behalf to accomplish in and through us what we could not accomplish on our own. Again, uh, not the place to do all the work uh, with all the passages in, in the New Testament to kind of construct this, but this is, this is not, this is a pretty robust kind of operating definition uh, there if we would do that. More than him just passively smiling down on us. God's grace is him actively involved in us. His working in us. His action through us. God's grace is essential fuel. Fuel for kingdom living. God's grace is what sunlight is to a solar panel. It's what oxygen is to a fire. It is what jet fuel is to a 747. It is the necessary ingredient in accomplishing anything in the kingdom of God. And so it is the essential power for any real transformation in us. If we want to operate in the character of Christ, we need grace. We need it today. We will need it tomorrow. 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, the thing that's going to make us bright shine as the sun, is God's grace. Way to be there. <laughs> God's grace is a fuel for the eternal kind of life. And it's really important to start here when we talk about change happening in our lives because if we don't, it's really easy for our talk of change to then just become behavior modification. Apart from grace, all of our efforts to change will be simply exercises and holding our breath. And if you've ever tried to change something about yourself by sheer willpower, that's what it feels like, right? It's like holding your breath. And it can work. And if you practice, you can learn to hold your breath for a really, really long time. I, somewhere along the line, I got this picture. Do you know the difference between a guppy and a whale? Right? The guppy can breathe under the water. The whale is just faking it. God's grace 
Our transformation goes from holding our breath, even if you can do it for a really long time, goes from holding our breath to we can breathe underwater. That's why Jesus could call his yoke easy, his burden light. He wasn't holding his breath. He's just breathing underwater. So that's God's grace. But it's true that our transformation is unmerited, is unearned. It doesn't mean that it, that it happens without our participation. Again, as we were saying last week, God will never simply overpower us. He will never possess us. That's what demons do. We have a part to play in the change that God is working in us. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, for this very reason, make every effort, Peter writes, make every effort. Effort to add to your faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Make every effort. This is effort on our part that is required for our transformation. And again, there's a ton of things we could say uh, here uh, about our part in our transformation before this morning. I think It'll be really helpful to talk about this little tiny acronym that uh, Dallas Willard introduced back in 2002 or three in his book, Renovation of the Heart, that has been really, really helpful for me in my own journey of transformation and actually has informed and shaped much of how we as a church engage with this thing that we call spiritual formation. And this is the acronym VIM. Uh, VIM itself... Uh, for those of you educated uh, English folks, is an actual older word that means energy or enthusiasm. You might recognize it from the saying vim and vigor. have no idea what vim and vigor means or when you would use it, but I've heard the saying. So that's the, that's the word. But it's a, it's a helpful acronym for our part in spiritual formation because the three letters work out really nicely to represent these three elements that must be present, that we must bring to the table for us to change. And those are vision, intention, and means. In order for us to change anything about ourselves, our lives, even frankly outside of what we would consider uh, spiritual formation, but even like day-to-day stuff, like learning a language or learning to play an instrument, we need these three components for the change to actually take place. But just for our purpose this morning, let's, let's take uh, something like worry, okay? Just think about worry. Worry about worry. It's pretty generally accepted that worrying does not improve our quality of life. It is incompatible with kingdom living. And so let's say that you realize that worry is an issue for you, and and it is actually keeping you from being able to live the eternal kind of life. You're stuck in it. Um, And you decide you don't want to live that way anymore. Your journey to a worry-free living starts with a vision for what your life might be like without it. Maybe it starts by meditating on Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothes? And you begin to wrestle with how much of your energy and life is spent, is wasted on worrying. You begin to dream of all the things you could do with the mental energy and stress that would be freed up if you didn't worry. All the sleep you could get if you didn't worry. And so you dream of this carefree walk where you're, you're able to be fully present out to whatever's happening around you, to the people that you're around, to the beauty that you're encountering without worrying. And you get this clear and compelling vision for how much improved life would be if you were free from worry. It's the necessary element of vision. But of course, just a vision, just a dream, isn't enough, right? You would actually have to have intention to make this vision reality. You would have to intend for the vision to be real. A dream stays a dream until we stand up and say, by golly, I'm gonna do it. It's the resolve that you hear in the voice of the prodigal son. When, while he's feeding pigs on this farm, he gets a vision. What was the vision of? The vision of how good the servants at my dad's farm have it. There, that's awesome. It's great. He has this vision. You hear the intention in his voice when he says, therefore, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back to my father. Or the tax collector Zacchaeus, who after sitting at dinner with Jesus, gets a vision. Maybe it's the vision of how his corruption was actually hurting his neighbors. It's how it was hurting the world. Somehow he gets this vision that a transformation is necessary. So what does he do? He says, Stand by golly, here now. I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. That is intention right there. If we want to be free from worry, or again, fill in the blank for worry if there's something else that you're working on. Yeah, we have to have a clear picture of what is beautiful and how wonderful our life is going to be without it. But eventually, we just have to say, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to take a step. I intend to be free. And then finally, uh, once we intend to be free of worry, well, now we actually have to engage in the means to do it. Like, it doesn't just magically happen because we intended it to happen. Power of positive thinking doesn't work. It's good. It's like it's good to be positive and it's good to think positively. Those are good things. But it's not, doesn't, it's not enough. We have to actually engage in practices that will retrain our mind, retrain our body, retrain our spirit to cooperate with God's grace in ridding ourselves of worry. It is these practices that we call spiritual disciplines. They are things that we can do by direct effort. 
in cooperation with God's grace that enable us to do what we cannot now do by direct effort, right? Just like going out and trying to worry, trying not to worry, sorry, isn't going to work. It's going to be holding our breath, right? Uh, even if we try really, really hard, it's not going to work. All of a sudden, we start worrying about worrying because we're so tied up. We're too addicted, too enslaved to the benefits that we get from worrying to be rid of them by our direct effort. But while we cannot simply stop worrying by direct effort, we can, as Paul instructs us to, practice presenting our request to God by direct effort. Well, also, we can set our watches and set time aside in our day to pray about the things that we are tempted to be anxious about. We can practice regular thanksgiving to God for all of his provision and care for us. We can get away and practice silence and solitude in order to learn to be present and attentive to what God is doing here now as opposed to always being off in the future worrying about what might happen later. And there's just other tons of other different spiritual disciplines that we could engage with that would help train and mold and strengthen our ability to rely on God's grace working through us to rid us of worry. Yeah, admittedly, I know I've said this a lot, but I just need to say it again. This is a really quick flyover of how vision, intention, and means work together for our transformation. Uh, but even in this quick example, hopefully you can see how these things really help bring us to the table, bring us to a space where God can now actually do something in and through our lives. In addition, hopefully you can see that, well, change would be kind of impossible without, without all three of these vision, intention, and means working together, right? I mean, means without vision or intention, that's just empty exercise. It's empty religion. Really, that's what kind of derails into legalism. Us doing all this stuff, why are we doing it? I don't know, we're just supposed to. Leave me alone, I'm doing it. Kind of like the six-year-old whose parents are forcing her to play soccer even though she doesn't want to. Like, okay, she goes to practice and she's at the game. Or if we have this intention but we don't engage in the means to bring it about, well, then life is just frustrating. Right? Like wanting to lose weight but never changing your eating habits. You just sit and wallow in perpetual disappointment in yourself. Oh, I just really want this to change, but we're not doing anything about it. Or if you're intently engaged in means but with no vision for how life is going to improve, it just won't sustain your efforts. Nothing will seem worth it. Eventually, you'll give up. If you don't have a strong enough vision of how wonderful life will be without worry, 
uh, eventually you'll just kind of slip back into really worry seems like actually the most reasonable attitude to have in life. But with vision, intention, and means working together, we're able to engage with what can at times seem painfully slow, steady, arduous process of transformation. So people change by grace of God. People change by participating in the work that the grace of God are doing through vision, intention, and means. Final essential component that I want to talk about with regard to how people change is community. None of this happens on your own. These days in our culture, it is actually really, really popular to go on these individual journeys of enlightenment and transformation. Whether it's an individual pilgrimage to hear from some enlightened guru or some counselor or sage or podcaster. Or the privatized study of all these masters in the field of spiritual formation where we become an expert on what they say about this world of spiritual formation. Or to kind of live into this kind of hermit-like existence where we disengage from people to focus more on ourselves. But that is just simply not the way of Christian spiritual formation. Christian spiritual formation is something that you do with others. On the one hand, you do it with others because just from a pragmatic purpose, you need other people. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 24 and 25 say, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loves and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Like, being together is what spurs us on to do, to love, good works, Really, being together is how my lack of spiritual formation shows up, right? I mean, on my own, I can easily deceive myself that my picture of God is really accurate. That my picture of myself is spot on. That the life that I'm living really, really is kind of as good as it gets. And that the problems with what's going on wrong with the world are all out there but in community with others, in community with you. Well, now you can challenge me, right? You can help me see where I have blinded myself. But not only are you the spur for my transformation horse, if you will, uh, you are also the encouragement for the times when my resolve, when my intention, when my vision waver and weaken. So pursuing life change in, in community, well, it's a really pragmatic uh, purpose there, but even more than that, community is essential for Christian spiritual formation because it is the end goal of it. God's intention out of our spiritual formation 
isn't a bunch of individuals that look and act like Jesus. His goal is a community, a body, a people, a society that together reflect the glory of God, the character of Christ, and his original intent in making us in the first place. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, he doesn't just want me. He wants us. Not each of us wandering through eternity with our own green plain of wavy grass that we walk through blissfully doing things. He wants us all together in one big house with lots and lots of rooms. He wants us all together around one Big table, yeah, with lots and lots of food. He wants us all together in one big yard playing foot. Well, okay, some game, right? He wants one people, one family together for all eternity. So our spiritual formation requires us to be in community. Because that's how we're going to spend eternity. Us Together with Jesus. That's the goal. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? And so, Father, we, uh, we long for the day. We long for the day where our bent, fallen personality no longer gets in the way of your grace working in and through us. We long for the day when our brokenness and our addictions are taken from us and we are able to freely love, uh, freely enjoy, freely share ourselves with you and each other, freely experience the eternal kind of life that you that you created us for. So Holy Spirit, we uh, surrender ourselves to you that you might do this work in our hearts. We surrender ourselves to our brothers and sisters that they might be the iron that sharpens us. That they might be the, they might be your voice to us, both to challenge and encourage us and to care for us along the journey. And we seek to do this all for Jesus' sake. For that glorious day when we are all together for all eternity. So do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close in worship?